Hey, everybody. Welcome to this bonus episode of Imaginary Worlds. The guest from my last episode had so many interesting things to say that I couldn't fit into the broader theme of villains in 1984. And Shannon Shea had some great stories about working on Terminator 2. As we heard the episode back in 1984, Shannon was trying to break into the industry. He went to see the Terminator in the theaters because he was a fan of Stan Winston, who did special effects for the movie. Years later, Shannon found himself working on Terminator 2. He was excited to work with his hero, Stan Winston, but he also realized how much James Cameron had been involved in the design process. In fact, he actually saw James Cameron's original drawings for the Terminator. I asked him to describe what they looked like. They were colored pencil drawings. They were colored pencil, and, and, and he, like yours truly, I mean, I love drawing on black paper with, with white pencils, especially when you're trying to do something moody and scary. But no, he had like a, like a, a graphite on white drawing of like the Schwarzenegger Terminator with part of his skin missing and his eye there. So, and they were his drawings, they were his designs, you know? And so it's the same thing with, uh, with sections of the robot, you know, like the legs and things, you know, he, he did that himself. And he also did that on aliens. I mean, I don't know if I'm, you know, letting the, the cat out of the bag here, but, you know, Stan had done some drawings of the queen alien, but Jim just kind of went, this is what I want and did his drawing, and it was spectacular. <laughs> it's like, wow, it's really cool, you know? He's really an amazing artist, an amazing illustrator. So when you worked on T2, like, what kind of conversations did you have with him about about the character compared to, you know, the Terminator that everybody knew versus this newer Terminator we're going to uh, show everybody? Terminator 2 was, the was I think, the first film that I worked on where the script was so secretive that... When you were working on something that was script important, you literally got a page. In in some cases, everything was blacked out except the description that you had to read. So I really didn't know much about the story of Terminator 2 until it was... Pre- I know that John Connor was in it. I knew of the T-1000. I knew there was going to be this nuclear holocaust scene, which I was pretty responsible for figuring out how we we're going to do that. But as far as, you know, discussions about how things were going to change, even when Schwarzenegger came in for a life cast, he wouldn't, he wasn't talking about it. Like no one was talking about it much. I mean, we figured out that Arnold was going to be the good guy because, you know, suddenly we had this new guy that was liquid metal, you know. So I will say one thing. We, we did push the envelope on those Schwarzenegger Terminator effects. I mean, not that they weren't good in the first film, but we really, we really pushed further, I think, on the second film. And I know that there was something that Jim wanted to do that we just didn't have the time to, to perfect. And that was for scenes where he's half of his face is blown off and he was going to have dialogue. He wanted it to be where from one camera angle, it would be Schwarzenegger in a makeup doing his lines. And then from the other camera angle, like on, you know, past him onto, you know, Linda Hamilton, it would be a puppet that would lip sync, like a lip syncing puppet. But even in 1990, we really, those things were, we were getting close, but we we just weren't there yet. We just didn't have the time to do that development. But think about amazing that would have been with what we had developed all the way through into Jurassic Park and Tales from the Crypt and Chucky and all that stuff to have a lip syncing Schwarzenegger puppet like that would have been pretty cool. 
It's a shame we didn't get to do it. And by puppet, you mean that the the side that's the puppet is like the totally exposed, totally exposed side. Yeah, but but there'd still be elements of lips and stuff. But he wanted it to be able to you know talk and move his head and this and that. You know, so it's you know you you you'd think that that would be perfect because it's a mechanism anyway. But we just like I said, we had so much to do on that show. I think people one of the the misinformation about Terminator Two is how much of that is practical. I mean, people just assume that when the T-1000 is running and all of a sudden they're going, you know, and, and all these things are appearing on his chest, they think those are all CGI. But if you think about what motion mapping was in 1990, the motion mapping that we did on Spy Kids was revolutionary. I mean, it, that back in, in 1990, you would need a, a, a motion control camera, you know, capturing all the data. I mean, that wasn't that at all. That was literally physical foam rubber that had been, uh, vacuum metalized that was like little flowers that were on his chest and were triggered you know mechanically triggered so when he's getting shot da, 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 those are foam rubber things blossoms opening up on his chest and people just assumed it was all cgi and that just isn't true there was tons of physical effects in that film that i think people assume are cgi and it's just not they're physical they're real we really did it we really did it so what were some ways that you did, you were talking about how he wanted to push the design of the Schwarzenegger Terminator. You know, there's that, that scene that sounds amazing that he, he was not able to do. What are some things that you did do that you're like, well, yeah, so they did this, the original 84 film, but we wanted to to do this a little differently. And I'm proud, you know. I, yeah. I think, yeah, I think one of the, one of my favorite effects that we did for Terminator 2 was when uh, John Connor says, show him. Show him. And throws him the knife and he cuts through his his arm and rips the skin off of his endoskeleton. And I mean, if you watch that, I think there might be a cut. There might be a cut, but it was filmed. It was kind of filmed in a way where you see him start the cut with a bleeding knife. He lowers his hand out of frame. The mechanical arm comes up and he strips the skin off. Now listen to me very carefully. You know, it's the old. Texas switch, you know, but it's, it's, it was so great when we saw the dailies of that. It was really beautiful. And so that's what one of my favorite things. And that hand actually worked. And I remember we had to change, I mean, they're minute, aesthetic, minute things so that the mechanism would actually work. There's another shot that I think is in like a, a long version of the film where they open up Schwarzenegger's head and pull out his, the chip in his head. And Linda Hamilton's about to destroy it. And it's so weird because it's there is a puppet of Schwarzenegger on one side and there is Schwarzenegger sitting on the other side. It's not a mirror. It is literally, I think, uh, in that one, I think it's Linda Hamilton and, and, and her sister. She has a twin sister. How, how coincidence. How weird is that? But that shot in the film or that shot and the stuff that we did for that is really cool because they had designed i think steve berg had designed this thing where there's like this um like corkscrew thing that comes out of his skull and then you open that up and inside of it is this chip that they pull out it's it's it was really neat and, and it's a shame that that i think you can see it in like extended versions of the film it wasn't in what was released uh you know in, in the theater certainly not to the extent of what we did it's a beautiful fake head, by the way, sculpted by Greg Figgle. Just beautiful. We'll hear more from Shannon Shea 
in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So it's funny, I was trying to think about other really memorable kind of monsters or, or things created with practical effects in the 80s. Um, there's Chucky, there's Predator, Beetlejuice. I don't know, I feel like 84, I don't know, I, do you feel like there was something going on in the industry? Like, oh, Star Wars comes out in 77, and there's this sense of, oh my God, this is what we can do? And this sort of like yeah. slow build, slow build, slow build. It's. It, it, do you feel like yes. by the time you get to 84, you're starting to get towards like this industry coalescing, getting really excited about what it's capable of? Yes, I think that that if I had to say what the arc was, you know, the, the actual arc, because I think we're on the downside of this now. It starts with movies like The Howling and uh, Scanners and An American Werewolf in London. And I think that what happened in Star Wars, because you remember Star Wars, there's as much creature stuff in Star Wars as there is, you know, spaceships and flying. I mean, there's Chewbacca, who is in the entire picture. I mean, there's a guy in a suit in the entire picture with moving lips. And I mean, he's really well done. Stuart Freeborn, an English uh, makeup effects guy, did him. So he's in the entire picture. People just assume, oh, Chewbacca, that's a makeup effect. He's walking around through, you know, most of the picture, you know, and then you have, the, you know, the, the Jawas, which I know are more wardrobe. And But I would even push C-3PO into that category. He is a robot. It's a man in a suit. You know what I'm saying? So if you look at these things, which I think people took for granted in 1977, you see a very logical splitting off between optical effects which are X-Wing fighters and all this stuff going this way. And you see creature effects, which is going from Chewbacca to American Werewolf and the Howling going this way. And so you have this, this kind of bifurcation of technologies that just start building on each success that goes in front of it. And so it's like this acceleration that was happening in 1984. I agree with you. I think 1984 is a pivotal year. It's, it's just before things really hit. Because the next year, we're working on aliens at Stan Winston. So yes, it keeps building, 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 building. It goes all the way up to Jurassic Park. You get to Jurassic Park, we're building 40-foot-long puppets that people on set are moving. And this big foam rubber animatronic is moving on set. And then digital comes in and we start going down which is not to say that there haven't been some amazing animatronics and amazing makeups that have been done post-Jurassic Park. I would be a liar if I said that. It's just that the demand starts going down. Those of us that were lucky to be part of that kind of gold rush, let's call it. It was like a gold rush. I mean, it, we got to see some of the best, you know, and then and now things have just pared down. I mean, there's still people out there fighting the fight, doing great work. It's still impressive to see when people do things that are a little outside of the box. But someone, uh, and I'll, for, for, for the sake of this person, I'm going to just say, leave them, their name off. But I was talking to someone recently. They had been on a, a big television show 
really popular television show. I'll keep that under wraps. He said, oh, you'd hate to be on set. And I went, why? And he went, because there's very little yelling anymore, which was always a big part of working on set. We'd bring a puppet out, we'd set it up, get everything lit. We'd go through a take and a cable would break. And boy, the screaming would start because everyone had to stop. We had to open up the puppet. We had to reroute the cable. We would hook it back up again and start all over again. It would take sometimes 20 minutes. So 20 minutes on set of dead time would irritate people. He said, now you go out there. It's not perfect the first time. He said, no one gets angry. They just say, thank you. Could you please move everything out of the way, please? And they move it out of the way. They shoot their plate and they move on. And then someone comes up and says, okay, we're done with you for the day. They sign you out. You go home. Because the idea is we'll, we'll fix it in post with CG. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's just, and again, it's just, it's the logical progression of things. I understand, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a dinosaur myself, but there's something about having something on camera, on set, in front, or to be more specific, having Robert England in a makeup acting. I mean, you do that and you're setting yourself up for some real amazing stuff. I, I think there's something there's something about trying to make terror less about, you know, this human scale, or you have these like weird stuff. Like I, I can't remember the name of the picture. I know my, my daughter made me watch it. And there's a lot of gore effects in there, pretty horrific gore effects. And and, and that's the other thing that I see a lot of too, is, is I see a lot of people doing very very realistic gore stuff that sometimes is enhanced with CGI just to make it that much more horrible. But to me, that's not what intrigues me. The, the ones, the, the characters you picked, there are characters, you know, and I really like that. I mean, even the jaw, the shark from Jaws in its own way is a character. It has a theme. It's, you know, it's, it puts you in its point of view as it's going through the ocean and all that stuff. It's, it's not just some psycho it's not just some crazy cult or someone wearing a plastic bunny mask it's it is a full character and i think that that's in my opinion what's missing from a lot of things and like you know i, I mean there's so much that was happening back in those days and and it's it's i still say this is okay i'm gonna leave you with this thought and this is something that you know you can debate with another guest somewhere down the line this is my prayer I hope that AI explodes. I hope AI explodes all over the industry. And I hope what it does is generates a movement, a humanist movement, where it comes to motion pictures and the, the production of them. I hope AI becomes so, so mundane, so huge and so mundane, that people just get tired of looking at it. And then one day someone will do something like scanners, where it's just a bunch of air bladders under someone's face, you know, moving around. People go, what am I looking at? You know, because, you know, as Steve Johnson said it better than me, Steve Johnson said it used to be people would look at something and go, how do they do that? He said, now people look at stuff and go, oh, it's a computer. And I think that has taken something out of it all. So when you pick 1984, you're talking about when the ship is leaving the port, you know, not when it has come back and all the cargo has been distributed. I also want to play an excerpt from my conversation with Neil Gordon. I asked Neil if Freddy Krueger feels dated now, 
because there's been a movement away from depicting villains with physical deformities. He said yes. In fact, he recently found himself in the middle of a controversy around this issue. Neil Gordon is a creature makeup designer on Doctor Who, and sometimes they produce mini-episodes for the telethon Children in Need. And recently, they did a mini-episode about the Doctor Who villain Davros. Now, going all the way back to the 1970s, this villain Davros has been depicted as having a bulbous, bald head with wires in it. He's blind and sees out of an artificial eye, and he moves around in kind of a motorized chair. But in this new mini-episode, we see Davros at the beginning of his career as an evil genius, looking very able-bodied. Davros, an honor to work for you, sir. Then allow me to show you the future of our beloved Khaled race. A lot of fans were upset about this change and vented their frustration on social media. But Neil says even before he worked on this mini-episode, he had given the subject a lot of thought. I, I wrote a piece for a magazine about uh, the last Bond movie. There was a lot of notes about the fact that you weren't allowed to mention... No, it was about the makeup on Rami Malek that um, Barry Gower did. And it was like, you can't mention scars. You can't say scars. You can't say this. It can't... Because there'd been a lot of issues with... You know, a lot of pushback against those things that always putting a big scar on a villain or putting them in a wheelchair, you know. So, you know, a bit of simplistic psychology. People sometimes, you know, going back uh, a ways, people would fear or not identify very easily with anybody with a disability or something like that. You know, I think that was sort of built into people to be less understanding of. And so, again, it was very easy to, to create a villain out of people who had those kind of problems, those issues, you know. And, and now we're more enlightened, you'd hope. I mean, there is. I mean, again, there's always a reaction to everything online, especially with Doctor Who. But I know that some people are like, wait, Davros, you know, he was scary looking. And now he just looks like a Nazi, like you've, you know, Davros has gone woke or whatever, <laughs> you know. But it's, it happened. And, and you've kind of, you know, you've got to see it from all sides, you know, and I think that's it. You will always have some things that it, it's easy to be angry at. It's easy to be upset at change. But at the same time, you've got to try and change some of these things because some of those perceptions are they do become ingrained. They do become the idea that someone in a, in a wheelchair is somehow, you know, that if you keep painting all these villains as scarred and, in, you know, requiring wheelchairs and all these sort of things, that becomes the norm. That becomes ingrained in people. You know, I see the point. You know, there's sometimes, I mean, personally, I'm gutted. I love Davros. I love the character. I love making Davros. I've done Davros a couple of times. And it pains me in one way because you just go, oh, that's it. It is. It's an established thing and everything. But at the same time, you go, well, no, they, they also want to, you know, you look at the new specials and we've got characters in wheelchairs who are heroic uh, and very much part of the story. And actually, that just is more uncommon. So yes, maybe it's time to flip it around a bit and try and just take away the stigma from that, take away the connotations of the evil genius in his, you know, lair with the cat and the wheelchair and the scars and turn it into a different thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, do you miss that? Or do you feel like it became too much of a crutch to designing a villain being like scars, melted face? Exactly. I mean, that's... 
you know, you go back into the 80s. And of course, that was the, that was people's go to. Let's make them burn. Let's make them this. You know, I mean, you look at you look at those characters, you know, you look at Jason, you know, and he, he's a, a child with a deformity, a hydrocephalic head and all that kind of thing. You know, you look at Freddy, it's all he's been burnt and all that kind of, you know, they're they're just easy things to do. You know, it's it's like going the films that kind of went, well, every time there was an action movie in the 80s, the villain was a terrorist, you know, and we had lots of uh, Arabic actors being terrorists. And at some point, you've got to kind of move away from the stereotype, you know, so these things have got to evolve. It's just an evolution. You know, we're evolving a bit. You'd hope that we're all evolving a bit. And we just got to work a bit harder to tell those stories in in smarter thinking than lazy thinking. Well, that's it for our episode of Bonus Material. We'll be back next week with part two of our mini series, Class of 84. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.